Welcome again to all of our SGO listeners. This is the third installment in Keeping Up with the Chemos on Trabectoden in Lyomyosarcoma and Soft Tissue Sarcomas. I'm Tracy Lynn Hall. I'm a gynecologic oncologist at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, and I am joined by... I'm Jennifer McDonald. I'm co-moderating tonight, and I am a clinical pharmacy specialist at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. Hi again. Thank you again for having me. My name is Sam Bose. I'm a gyne medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Josh Cohen, gynecologic oncologist, City Pope, Orange County in Southern California. Great to be here with you. Hi, I'm Claire Mock. I am a clinical pharmacy specialist at Harris Health System in Houston, Texas. In this edition of Keeping Up with the Chemos, we're going to talk about monitoring and the follow-up after trabectidin has been given. So what do we expect and what do we want to make sure and talk about and cover with our patients when they come to those follow-up visits? I think in this setting, just big picture, anytime we're dealing with recurrent metastatic sarcomas, one quality of life, goals of care, and what's the big picture for these patients? Because I think that's really what we have to make sure we're accomplishing. Are we really helping them achieve their goals? Is the toxicity of the drug worth the benefit or potential benefit? As we talked about in the prior podcast, some of the more common side effects, nausea, fatigue, neutropenia. So really understand, are they eating and drinking? Do you need to adjust nausea medications? Are they having a lot of side effects from growth factor support with bone pain that instructions with Claritin or other medications? And then also monitor their liver function enzymes, making sure that you don't need to adjust or dose reduce with hepatotoxicity between treatments. Those are some of the more common things that I look for with this particular drug. Definitely agree with that, especially with the liver toxicity. I think almost 30 to 40% of patients end up with some degree of liver toxicity with trabectidin. So it's very common that patients will either need a treatment break or need dose reduction with the trabectidin. I think it's also important to think about including supportive care medicine for patients, obviously, in any time you're dealing with recurrent metastatic cancer of any type, but making sure you have your team members working with you. We've moved away from using the term palliative care, but supportive management. Uh, and so team approach here, different things you can use to help with appetite, medical marijuana, or other medications that may be available to patients, little things that could make a big difference for helping them sleep at night, like melatonin, things like that. Yeah. And I think that's a great plug too, right? For most of these patients, all of these patients, right? Should be plugged in with our palliative care service probably, right? At this point and probably stage in their disease. Have any of you seen CPK or rhabdo? I know Dr. Mock mentioned that she had seen it before. I know I've seen some elevations in my own practice. Kind of what scares you or like makes you nervous when you see those elevations and what do you do to manage that? Very rarely seen like a couple of times in my practice, more commonly elevations. So far, no one has come in with bulbo and rhabdo, thankfully. But uh, usually with some extra hydration that has resolved, thankfully, once I've done a treatment break as well, and then just resumed once the CPK normalized. I think identification, sometimes inpatient admission or evaluation is what you need, extensive hydration. Often these are already very sick frail patients, unfortunately dehydrated. Whether you need to schedule additional hydration outside of the concern for rhabdo is another issue, but I think having a, a low threshold for the workup potentially through your infusion center. If you do have access to an infusion center that has some type of 24 observation or potentially going to the ER, which obviously we'd like to avoid for patients in this setting. But one of the more common things that comes up for me is dose reduction with liver impairment. And so I, I think we'll talk about that in a little bit, but these are things where, although I may start at 1.5 milligrams per meter squared for an otherwise straightforward patient, I have a fairly low threshold for dose reduction if I'm concerned about additional toxicity. I think one of the things with this agent is sometimes we don't use this agent commonly that sometimes we forget about the CPK monitoring and the cardiac monitoring because that's not something we do a lot in common practice in gynoc. 
But definitely, if your patient is complaining of any muscle aches and pains and you haven't checked a CPK, that is definitely something you should do. Uh, You should be monitoring it before every cycle just to catch those early elevations before your patient gets into trouble. And then definitely echoes can be an issue for us getting those scheduled. So if you're doing echoes or magas, kind of getting those planned out ahead of time and getting them on the patient's schedule. I'm not sure we talked much about was that these patients need a central line. Getting patients in to get that initial central line. They may need some line care. They may have issues with their line. So that's another part of this that we need to be thinking about because they are going to have a central line to be able to get this therapy. It's actually, it's a great segue, Dr. Maka, to bring that up. I know we've had a few patients who've been on trebectogen for quite some time, speaking to, I guess, the stabilization of disease that sometimes you can see for quite a while. And we've had patients intermittently either get port infections, or I don't know if maybe it's the vesicant properties, but they just have a lot of pain or issues with their port site on trebectogen. And so we intermittently lose that central access, which results in them having to hold therapy for whatever time. So this is not something, I guess, just to put that out there for everyone that anyone feels comfortable with giving peripherally. So this is not an agent that we allow to be given through a peripheral IV. I don't know what other people do, but we don't even give our three-hour infusions over a peripheral IV. It could be something that when it vesicates, it's a very, very serious issue for this agent. I agree. We need, I think, central line and echo or MUGA. Just those are your first two check boxes after you've made the decision to give the drug, and then you go from there. Well, we mentioned a little bit that you know liver toxicity, other side effects can lead to dose reductions. How do you decide when to do a dose reduction, when to do a delay in the next dose? I think if someone is already starting with baseline liver dysfunction, I'm not starting at 1.5. I'll usually start lower than that, even 0.9 milligrams per liter squared. It would would not be unreasonable if they have significant liver dysfunction or elevated LFTs, but I'm more likely to dose reduce than dose delay in this population. But I'm curious what my esteemed colleagues would do in this setting. But as I said, I have a fairly low threshold from going from 1.5 to 1.2 milligrams per liter squared for the 24-hour pump. I'd rather do that than delay an infusion another one to two, three weeks, just because of the nature of this disease. What we typically end up doing is if someone has a transaminase elevation of uh, greater than 2.5 above the upper limit of normal, we'll delay for that cycle and delay the next dose until three weeks after. But um, if that transamination elevation goes above five times the upper limit of normal, or there's a billy elevation, then we will delay the three weeks, but then also dose reduce to uh, 1.1 from the 1.5 mix per keg. Sorry, 1.2. The textbook answer for holding and dose and dose reductions are if the patient's platelets are less than 100,000 and their ANC is less than 1.5, at that point, you would want to delay for counts and you would want to dose reduce them. If that level of platelet dysfunction was less than 25,000, they would go down. If they were natoring like at 25,000, then they would you would want to dose reduce them to the next dose level. ANC less than 1,000 during the prior cycle or less than 500, you may want to consider dose reducing them to the next dose lower, 1.2 or possibly a little bit lower. Total bilirubin greater than upper limit of normal should be a hold. AST, ALT, ALKFOS, or creatine, or creatinine phosphokinase, CPK, those, if they're greater than 2.5 times the upper limit of normal, you 2.5 times the upper limit of normal, you'd want to hold at that point for those. If those are significantly elevated, you'd want to 
wait for those to come back down to at least a grade one and then consider a dose reduction as well. And then any other grade three or four toxicity you should hold and consider dose reductions for. If they're starting out with initial hepatic impairment, the starting dose is much lower. It's recommended to start at 0.9 milligram per meter squared instead of the 1.5. And I can kind of tell you from my using this in the Medoc setting, because I'm also uh, the clinical pharmacist for Medoc is that not that many people tolerate the 1.5 milligram per meter, meter squared that well. So most of these patients are getting some sort of dose reduction to be able to continue therapy. For the listeners, so the dosing 1.5, first dose reduction for most people is going to be 1.2. Next dose reduction is going to be 1.0. For liver toxicity or hepatotoxicity, you heard starting dose 0.9 milligrams per meter squared. Then for me, the next dose reduction is 0.6. And then my third dose reduction is 0.3 if they have existing hepatotoxicity. If you use the combo, we're in totally different territory about the starting dose and the dose reductions. And the other thing that I've had come up when we've used the combo in a couple of instances is when you move to maintenance. So when you drop the doxo and just go to in, you keep the three-hour infusion. So do not you do not switch to the 24-hour infusion. So you'll keep whatever dose you maintained on with the combo and then move into the three hour infusion at that same dose. So just again, random side note for any of those people out there who have used the combo or might use the combo on some of those kind of pearls there. Dr. Mock, did you have another comment? Oh yeah. I was just going to mention that I actually had to pull the trial for the dose reductions to take a look at what those were for the combination. And it looks like they do 60 milligram per meter squared of doxorubicin up front, followed by the first dose reduction of 50 milligram per meter squared and then 45 for the doxorubicin as the third dose reduction, as, as the second dose reduction, I guess that would be technically. Um, for trabectidin, they start at 1.1 milligram per meter squared. They go to 0.9 milligram per meter squared as the first dose reduction. And then the second dose reduction, they have listed in the trial as 0.7 milligram per meter squared. I'm not sure what that means for people who have possibly prior hepatic dysfunction when they're going into this. That seems like kind of something you would probably, you would not want to give the combination if they have hepatic dysfunction at baseline, because both of these drugs are not great in the hepatic dysfunction realm. Doxorubicin is eliminated by the liver and definitely has its own set of restrictions as far as what you can give in hepatic dysfunction. Right. Those patients that had hepatic uh, dysfunction weren't included in the trial anyway. All right. So to wrap up, I would like to invite our three guests just to give uh, maybe three pearls that they would take home with them from this podcast for our audience. And then we will conclude tonight's podcast and thank everyone for joining and listening in. Let's start with you, Dr. Bose. So I think trabectinin is a drug that you can consider typically in the second, third line setting for uterine sarcomas. If you are thinking about a tumor that you want to get a very quick objective response, you can think about combining it with doxorubicin in the frontline setting, but that is a newer regimen with higher toxicities that you would have to consider. And then the most important thing that I uh, I would say, echoing from what Dr. Cohen mentioned previously, once you're getting to trabectidin in someone's uterine sarcoma course, um, usually you should be thinking about, are there clinical trial options? You should really get supportive care involved and make sure that we're not hindering someone's quality of life with the treatments that we're giving them. 
Three pearls. Okay. I would say first prior anthracycline for, for patients. So if they've had a prior anthracycline, they may be candidate for an alkaloid like trabectidin. And then I think our two starting points, we said echo was really important in central access. So making sure you have central access and echo to start or having an understanding of their cardiac function and their liver function. And then third, for those busy gynecologic oncologists that are listening that don't do a lot of in pump infusions, as you've heard from Dr. Mock, some different options for that. Also reaching out again to medical oncology colleagues or others who have other regimens, like in the colorectal cancer world with Folfox, where you have more pumps more commonly used. So you can still offer patients these regimens, even though your office or practice may not directly have experience managing these pumps, it's still not a reason to uh, negate the use of trabectidin in the right setting. All right. And following that, I will remind people that these drugs do have some emetogenic potential. And so we need to keep an eye on that. Other things that I can think of are mainly lab monitoring and dose reductions for patients as appropriate. Really, this this whole podcast series has been so important and helpful for providers across the board. And I just want to acknowledge your efforts and Beth's efforts and really wonderful work. And I learned a lot tonight too. So thank you all. Well, again, thanks everyone. And that will conclude our series on trabectidin. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO On The Go podcasts, please email us directly at education at sgo.org.